0: And he sat down and sort of quietly started crying. And I just looked at him and I was like, he, this man has just accomplished the most amazing thing in his life. And he trained for 10 years for an entire decade to be able to do this and put everything into it. And he just felt you know, so overwhelmed and so happy.
1: Episode 381, the first woman to kayak the Amazon River from source to sea with Darcy Gector. This episode is brought to you in part by KIND. KIND makes delicious healthy snacks using whole ingredients. If you guys haven't tried it yet, their Pressed Bars by KIND are the best in my opinion. Go try the Mango Apple Chia, it's awesome. We've got a special offer for you guys to try 20 KIND snacks with their new snack pack. You can enjoy 50% off and free shipping on your first snack pack when you subscribe to it through Snack Club, which is KIND's monthly snacks subscription service. Go to kindsnacks.com slash sports for more details. That's kindsnacks.com slash sports to learn more and to subscribe to the snack pack. You know your dog is the best part of your adventure, and a great way to keep him happy and healthy is by feeding him the best pet food. That's why you need to check out Canada Pet Food. Canaday is an independent and family-owned pet food company who uses the same care and the same quality ingredients they want for their own pets when making their pet foods. Check out canaday.com slash podcast. You're listening to the Adventure Sports Podcast, brought to you by 180 Tech. We talk with adventurers from around the globe to bring you the inspiration and motivation you need to get started in the outdoors or to keep you moving if you're already there. Now here's your host, Kurt Linville.
2: Hey, today is a fun show about the Amazon. It's about kayaking. It's about first descents from source to sea. And it's about being a small petite gal who wanted to prove that if you really want to do something, it can be done. Darcy Gector is with us today. Darcy grew up in the Aspen area, Aspen, Colorado, and I found her today in Glenwood Springs, just up the valley. Darcy, welcome to the program.
0: Thanks, Kurt. It's great to be here.
2: I'm excited about the show today because I love water sports. I love talking about the the Amazon, and I love it when people have the can-do attitude that you have about doing adventure sports. So, Let's start with that. So, Darcy, you, you kind of framed your um, little summary about this show that you wanted to make sure that you got to talk about being someone that people wouldn't expect to be that adventurous, who has proven that she is adventurous. So, let's just dive in there.
0: All right. Um, yeah. So, I guess I'm really short, I'm pretty skinny, and I'm a woman, and I'm a vegan. And when you put that whole package together, people often don't think of things like, oh, she must be a really good kayaker, or she must be really tough, be able to do these sorts of things. And kind of this is something I've butted my head against my whole life, including, you know, as a little kid and up in high school, like the sports writer for the Aspen newspaper would write about me playing sports in high school. And he, his nickname for me was diminutive Darcy. Oh no! (laughs) And, you know, I was, I was only 14. The first time I saw him use that term and I was like, Oh, cool. I made it on the front page of the newspaper. But then I went home and I looked up the word and, you know, it really was quite insulting, you know, and, um, So I've kind of, yeah, spent my whole life trying to prove, you know, little wimpy looking girls can be pretty darn tough.
2: Well, I know that for a fact. You don't have to convince me, <laughs> but <laughs> I can see how that could be a thing. So how often do you get that response?
0: You know, um It does happen less and less, but I was a raft guide for a long time and spent years and years hearing clients pull a male raft guide aside and be like, please don't stick my family with that little woman over there and various things like that. And still every now and then, you know, I'll get people coming up to me at a river, like you can't kayak this river, like you're way too small. How can you fight these powerful rapids and stuff like that? And it's, it is diminishing and you know, I don't know how much of it is that I care less. Now I've proven in a way I've proven to myself that these, what these people saying isn't, isn't true and that I can do all these things. And so I think it's kind of a, a multitude of factors that one, I care less Two, maybe they're saying it less and three, maybe I'm just ignoring them more. But I think it is something that all women face in sports and especially all small women and that could be extended to just smaller people in general but you know my point is whether it's an athletic uh, endeavor or intellectual endeavor like don't let other people's perceptions of you stop you from doing what you want to do because they don't know you they're just making judgments and you know it's really pretty fun to prove them wrong
2: amen preach it (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. You know, we're all about shattering stereotypes. I, I tell you what, stereotypes get in the way of so many things. And one of the ways that you shattered the stereotype in a mega way was by becoming in 2013, the first female to do Source to See on the Amazon. Wow. Now that is a feat.
0: It is a feat, and you know, part of it could be because no other women really wanted to do such a crazy long trip. And I admire them for that intellectual capability, but I still feel pretty proud to be the first woman to do it.
2: Mm. Well, the stats that you sent me—this was 2013—and the stats yeah. that you sent me: uh, four thousand three hundred miles.
0: Yep, that's right. One hundred
2: and forty-eight days. Is that right?
0: That is correct. Yes.
2: That is a long trip. And when yes, you the say Am-
0: Amazon is pretty long. <laughs>
2: <laughs> when you say source to sea, there's some argument about which source is the source. Can you unpack that for us a little bit?
0: Yeah. So um, for about 50 years, the geographical world agreed that the Apurimac River in Peru was the The source of the Amazon. It was the longest tributary to the Amazon. And actually just about three months before we started our expedition, uh, a guy named Rocky Rocky Contos discovered that the Montaro River, also in Peru, was about 50 miles longer. So we sort of scrambled at the last minute and we changed plans so that we would start on the Montaro because we felt that he proved pretty definitively um, that it was the longer source. And now it's still in contention because the Montaro River has dams on it and the Apurimac does not yet have any dams on it. So a lot of people say, well, it should, the source should be free flowing and this other one shouldn't count. But we decided to go with the Montaro and so that's where we started. And the actual starting point for us was, um, we kayaked across a lake called Lago Acococha at about 15,000 feet in Peru, and then we hiked from the far side of the lake up into the tundra. You know, literally at times crawling on the ground, looking for the highest flowing water we could find. Wow! And then when the three of us agreed, like, okay, it seems to come out of the ground right here, we marked our GPS and said, okay, we found the source of the Amazon, and started heading downriver. <laughs>
2: So you did the longest Source to See, and someone that chose the other tributary might say, well, I did a Source to See, but it wouldn't be quite as long as yours.
0: Yeah, exactly. And, you know, the guys, the first people that ever did Source to See was in 1985, Joe Kane and Piotr Chmielensky, and they started on Apremac, and, you know, nobody's saying like, oh, well, you guys didn't really do Source to See now because the source has changed. It's just, you know, I guess...
2: Pluto's no longer our, a planet.
0: Yeah, exactly. Both, <laughs> both expeditions were valid with the information at hand at the time, you know.
2: Well, it's kind of a fun way to look at it, especially because you want to navigate the, the length of the Amazon. You know, you probably know this since you're a, a water person, but if you use the Missouri River as the source, called it the Missouri, the Mississippi, then mm-hmm. that is longer than the Nile, which people claim to be the longest river on Earth. Right.
0: Right. Right. And it
2: was just a matter that someone, when they saw the, the confluence of the two rivers, they said, this one's bigger, or this one feels more like the main channel. And so that continued being the Amazon, and the other one became the Missouri. Um, right. So I don't know. I don't know where all these end up, but the bottom line is you did an amazing trip 4,300 miles. So unpack that for us a little bit. First of all, why did you decide to do this?
0: Well, um, it's a good question. It, it truly started as a flippant decision to go along with a client of ours. So in, um, oh, maybe around 2003, we a British kayaker named David Midgley, who everyone calls Midge, he came to Ecuador to our company, Small World Adventures, and said, I want to kayak the Amazon from source to sea, so you need to train me to be a good enough kayaker to survive the white water. And we, we didn't believe it, and we didn't think he'd really do it. He was a total nerdy computer programmer from London and not <laughs> an overly athletic guy. And we said, okay, you know, whatever, come book a trip. And then for 10 years, he came to Ecuador, sometimes for two weeks, sometimes for as long as two months. And we trained him to become a class five kayaker so that he could make it through all the whitewater in the headwaters of the Amazon. And then he invited us, uh, me and my boyfriend Don to come with him on the whitewater section. And we said, yes, that sounds great. And then Don said to me one night, you should just think about, are you really going to be okay? You know, finishing the whitewater saying goodbye to Midge, flying home. And you're missing out on this chance to become the first woman to kayak the Amazon. And I said, oh, well, you know, I really hadn't thought about it that way, but you're right. Let's go. And then as soon as I said, let's do it, Don said, wait a minute. Are you serious about this? You can't be serious. I don't think we should do it. And then it kind of snowballed from there. And he now likes to say that he is the first man to kayak the Amazon because his girlfriend made him.
2: <laughs> so <laughs> so Midge, David, wanted to do it. And now um, your boyfriend is saying that he's the first. So did did David finish? Did they both finish together? How did this work?
0: Yeah, we all three finished together and we, so our group of three became the first three to kayak the entire thing. You know, um, nine other people had done a source to see before we had done it. And one guy walked the entire thing and everyone else had done some combination of kayaking and rafting. And, Mm. um, we, we all three finished together. You know, that was a pretty monumental accomplishment in itself because most expeditions this long have some kind of falling out or break apart at some point. And, you know, we definitely fought a lot, but we did stay together as a team and we finished as a team.
2: Boy, that takes something too. And I'm just going to throw this out there. I believe that men need a woman around at those times. That, you may have been the glue that held the team together. Now the guys might disagree with that. I don't know. I'm just throwing it out there. Well,
0: I would like to think that, you know, I, I would say at times they probably both were really annoyed at me. I, (laughs) I told myself, I know I thought Midge took a pretty big risk inviting a couple along with him, you know, that it would be really easy for me and Don to gang up on Midge. And so I told myself before the trip, you know, I'm not going to side with Don just because he's my boyfriend. I'm going to be, you know, objective about this and I'm going to be neutral, and uh I'm honestly not sure how much I succeeded in being neutral, but I think I did piss them both off equally, so I accomplished <laughs> something there. That was good. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, that's great. So let's talk about what it was like to actually do this i When you do a an epic journey this huge, then it's hard to to encapsulate it, I guess, to get it down to something that you can answer in a couple of sentences. So uh, I don't know where to start with that, but can you give us a feel of what it was like?
0: Yeah, I guess, you know, we kind of broke it down to ourselves in different phases. And phase one was the whitewater section, and that lasted about 25 days. And, you know, that included everything from the logistical problem of actually locating the source, which was fairly challenging, to then... You know, we drug our boats for a couple of days down the riverbed because there wasn't enough water to float the kayaks. And eventually the river got bigger and bigger. And we did end up uh, kayaking through about two weeks of really difficult class five and five plus whitewater. And that was sort of the the physical, um, yeah, I guess, the physical crux of the expedition. And we had a couple unforeseen challenges. They were building a dam in one of the deepest canyons. And um, we had coordinated with them beforehand to stop the dynamite work that they were doing so that we could safely travel through the canyon. But one thing we didn't know was how far along the construction had gone. And they had blasted, you know, giant, like, school bus-sized pieces of rocks into the river. And some places the river completely flowed underneath the rocks. And it was just such an unnatural riverbed that kayaking through that was by far the most dangerous kayaking that I've ever done in my life. And so but we did, we all survived and that worked out. So that was kind of phase one. And then phase two was the part that I was most worried about. And that was when we hit the flat water, we went through what Peru calls the red zone and uh shining path. This used to be like a big shining Path stronghold. Now there's a few remnants of shining path, but it's kind of been taken over by, um, uh, the cocaine industry. And now this region of Peru is the world's number one producer of cocaine and then there's indigenous people who have really been impacted by the shining path the drug traffickers and recently loggers and so they basically hate all outsiders coming into their territory you know and for very good reason and so this was a really complicated place to navigate you know river wise it was easy because it was all flat water but kind of trying to not piss off the local people not stumble upon a coca growing operation. And um, we ended up being really lucky. We had nothing but good experiences there, but it was a pretty stressful time for me. Like five tourists had been killed in this region in the years leading up to our expedition. So it was definitely a high stress for me. And then the final phase was the lower river and Kind of the challenges there were combating the monotony and the boredom of it. But then towards the end, too, about 800 miles from the ocean, we, we hit the tides. And so then we could only paddle six hours a day because the tides were so strong that we couldn't right. paddle against them anymore. And it was also like constantly minimum 20 mile per hour upstream winds. So it became, again, you know, a physical challenge added on top of the fact that You know, now we're over it. We want to get to the end, but our progress is so slow. Like, one day we did four kilometers an entire day. It was so windy. (laughs) And
2: And then you wonder why you didn't just hang out in a hammock for that day and hope for better weather the next day, right?
0: Yeah, exactly. And it was always such a hard call to... To not paddle because it was always windy. So, you know, to say, like, oh, maybe it will be better tomorrow, you know, a big part of us didn't believe it would be better tomorrow. But then there was also this thing of, like, we must keep moving down the river. And, you know, sitting around on the shore felt like a waste of time, even though it, it could have certainly been a huge saver of energy.
2: So did you have a raft with you or was it all kayaks?
0: Um, It was all kayaks when we, in terms of support. So uh, during the whitewater, there was various places where a vehicle could get to the river. So, you know, we would pack, say, eight days of food and gear into our boats and then resupply when a road could come in. And then when we got to the flatwater for the first part, we had a little motorized canoe with a local Ashaninka person in it driving the boat. And they kind of had a dual purpose of helping us with the local people and explain to them that we weren't a threat, we're just passing through. And then they also carried gear for us and we would meet them every night. And then in the lower river, we had, um, well, actually at the end of the red zone, we got an escort by the Peruvian Navy for about two weeks. Because wow. they were concerned about our safety. And then um, at the lowest part of the river, we had like a, a sleep aboard boat that we would meet at night, tie up to them and sleep there.
2: Now, did you use the same boats for the full length of the river or did you swap no, out your kayaks?
0: We swapped out after the 25. D- we had whitewater kayaks for the start. And then after the 25 days of whitewater, we switched into sea kayaks.
2: Okay, I was going to say, I can't imagine a whitewater kayak on the lower Amazon. I just can't imagine that that would have worked at all.
0: Yeah, it would have been horrible, and uh, the sea kayaks were definitely a good choice.
2: Okay, so you had support, ground support, we'll call it ground support, right, that had allowed you to have food and, and supplies. That was part of what I was wondering about, because whitewater kayaks, they don't hold a whole lot. <laughs>
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so we always had to get resupplied and I think um 11 days was the max that we had to do and that was in the whitewater kayaks and it was hard to, you know, carry 11 days worth of food and all the gear but, but um you know, most of our stints were like 5 to 8 days.
2: Mm. Well, tell our listeners, the long-term listeners all know these these numbers because we've talked about it before, but for people that are new to the show, new to kayaking or whitewater, uh, explain the rating system. And when you say class five and five plus, what that means.
0: Okay. So the rating system, they most people use a scale that goes from class one to class six. And class one means moving water, but barely. And then it gets progressively harder as you go up. And it's not only based on how difficult the river is but also what are the consequences if you make a mistake and so class three is like a pretty good intermediate river or rapid and you might have to make a couple moves but the consequences are very low if you if you tip over or even if you swim out of your kayak you're probably gonna be fine and then as you get into class four the moves get more complicated consequences get higher but still not that dire and when you get into the class well, let me skip ahead to class six, which to most people means unrunnable, but nowadays like kayakers are getting better and better and they are running a lot of what were previously called class six rapids, but for our purposes now unrunnable. And so class five and five plus means that there's very difficult moves to make in a rapid and the consequences are really going to be bad if you don't make those and not to say that you will always die if you mess up in a class five rapid, but death becomes a possibility or a more likely possibility if you're making mistakes in class five.
2: Mm. Well, class five scares me. I'll say that much. Wow.
0: Scares me too. I think it should scare most people.
2: (laughs) Well, it probably should. You know, we need a little bit of uh, apprehension when it comes to things that have that much risk associated with them.
0: Yeah, exactly. But you know, I will say for for Midge and for Don and I and people that do paddle class five a lot, I don't know that it ever stops being scary. But I think you you train so much and you get so much experience that you begin to 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 realize you can make these moves and also to recognize when you're not going to be able to make them, and then you know that you have to walk around that rapid. And you know the the physical training, but more so just the experience really helps guide your decisions so that. You know, when I'm paddling class five, I don't feel like I'm on the brink of death every second. Although, you know, someone outside observer could see it that way. But for me, I feel very much in control, but only because I've been training at it for 20 years.
1: Right. Hey, ASP listeners, have you ever tried a kind bar? You may have seen them in your local grocery store, coffee shop, or gym. They make delicious, healthy snacks using whole ingredients. Well, if you're ready to try some tasty and healthy snacks, we've got a special deal for you. Try 20 Kind Snacks from seven of their unique product lines with their new Snack Pack. You can enjoy 50% off and free shipping on your first Snack Pack when you subscribe to it through their Snack Club. Snack Club is Kind's monthly snack subscription service. Go to kindsnacks.com sports for more details on that. I love their pressed bars like the mango apple chia bars, or I pretty much guarantee you're going to love their breakfast bars first thing in the morning when you climb out of that hammock. So take a minute and see what they're creating over at kindsnacks.com/sports and get your 50% off plus free shipping on your first order. That's kindsnacks.com/sports.
2: As I'm sure you know from listening to the Adventure Sports podcast, some of the safest and best snow conditions for backcountry skiing of the whole year happen in the springtime and Bentgate has the gear you need. Come check out the latest in alpine touring, telemark, NTN and splitboarding gear. They have brands like Black Crows, DPS, Dinafit, G3, Icelandic, K2, Technica Blizzard, Arcteryx, Mammoth, Salomon, Vole, Neversummer, Jones, and BCA. And you do need to be safe out there. Bentgate has the latest in avalanche safety gear. They have beacons, airbags, shovels, and probes, and they're ready to help you educate yourself on snow safety. They also rent out gear so you can get your skis and your boots there as well as your avalanche safety equipment. What's more, they also have free demo ski days at local resorts so you can try out the latest gear. Now, how much fun does that sound? So swing by Bentgate in Golden, Colorado, or go to bentgate.com to find your new gear, as well as to get updates on all of their events. Well, here's a question for you. This winter, I started thinking about this for obvious reasons. I, uh, I love to ski, and I ski extreme terrain. And the terrain that I ski would probably be kind of like a Class 5 run on a kayak, right? High consequences Mm -hmm. if you make a mistake, that sort of thing. But I have trained myself to the point that I feel pretty confident. I know I can get down this stuff. However, I've also, i am been an active guy, but a desk jockey for a lot of years. So physically, I'm not an an Olympic athlete. So when I start getting into the extreme terrain, sometimes my muscles just can't quite do what I want to do. So I have to back Mm -hmm. off. Yeah. And I realize that you can be a really good skier, but then to become that excellent skier, you can't just ski. You have to train for skiing.
0: Right? Yes,
2: absolutely. Now, in kayaking, is there a, a parallel to that?
0: Yeah, 100%. It's, um, yeah, I mean, you might be able to look at a rapid, see the line, but, you know, oh, I've been already kayaking for eight hours today. I'm so exhausted. I know I am not going to be able to paddle hard enough to get from point A to point B. And yeah that physical strength is definitely a factor conditioning, and uh, yeah, I mean, it makes a whole world of difference in your mind if you 're feeling strong and confident in your physical abilities versus oh i 'm so tired i 'm beat down i 'm not going to be able to make this move,
2: mm. Mm. so that would be a good time to uh, take a break or or rest and do it another day, perhaps
0: yeah, exactly, and we did we faced that a lot, you know we were all in good physical kayaking condition on this trip. But during the whitewater, we were paddling eight to 11 hours per day. And, you know, it does get really tiring day after day after day. And especially for Midge, who was, you know, at the absolute limit of his ability, you know, the adrenaline rushes really take a lot of out of take a lot out of you, too. So if every single rabbit is an intense adrenaline rush, you know, that just saps your energy so much more, too. So we were always trying to Find the good compromise between make the miles that we felt we needed to make, but also not push it to the point where one of us was so exhausted we were going to make a mistake.
2: Mm. I was going to ask the next question was going to be about the adrenaline. And uh, because in in my experience, it drains me. You get the power you need for that little short period. But if you're going all day long, either you have to get to the point you're not getting the adrenaline all the time, or I don't know, to me, it would be so exhausting.
0: Yeah. And I, uh, like, I guess I call it adrenaline overdose or, and then leading to an adrenaline hangover. But I, I totally agree with you for me. I have a a limit of how much adrenaline in one day that my body can take without me just mentally saying, okay, I'm, I'm over this. And so, yeah, it is a, it's a big factor to keep your mind calm and make, try to limit the intensity of adrenaline rushes if that makes any sense and that to me is is a mental exercise as much as a, a physical exercise but yeah I've had plenty of days kayaking where you know after three hours of high intensity adrenaline I say okay I am done with this and then I just start walking the harder rapids because I just need to keep my stress level at a minimum at that point and I think everybody has a different capacity for it but that's another part of managing extreme sports like that is really knowing your own limits physically, mentally, emotionally.
2: Yeah. You know, your adrenal glands can be drained just from day-to-day stress as well. And then, you know, you get to the river, you get to the climb or you get to the ski slope or whatever it is, you may not have much in reserve. Right.
0: Right. Yep.
2: So I, I don't know, man, I, I can't imagine. I, the reason I bring this up is because of the 25 days. 25 days of hitting it hard, pushing the envelope of the most difficult boatable water. That's what we're talking about. And I just think, wow, it's not just a a feat of skill. It's also a feat of self-control.
0: Absolutely. And it, um, you know, every night when I laid down in my tent, you know, that was one advantage we had of being in the Andes Mountains. It was dark for about 11 hours every night. So we had pretty decent recovery time. Right. Right but i really did when i lay down on my thermarest every night i said okay you know you have 10 hours to repair yourself and be ready to do it again tomorrow and that little mantra i think really did help me it helped me to not lay there and worry about what was coming tomorrow it was like your only job right now is to focus on resting and um it did it did work to a certain extent and of course we all got really tired but I think just this mentality of like we're on this bigger mission we are trying to reach the Atlantic Ocean we have to keep going it was like a good driving force and we all did a pretty good job of managing ourselves in that regard
2: well I think that that would have been one of the biggest challenges but now let's turn it on its head a little bit when you got to the fo- the frog water farther down did you wish you were back yep. at the rapids again
0: yes very much so <laughs> <laughs> You know, we had days in the whitewater that were really hard and really stressful where we said, oh, I can't wait till the flatwater. But about one hour after hitting the flatwater, we said, huh, we really missed the whitewater. Mm. (laughs) We did some math when we got to the flatwater and we had lost 87% of our gradient in about, uh, I can't remember, 17% of the mileage. And so that doesn't, you know, to us, that didn't bode well for the river gradient coming up for us. And, uh, after doing some research, the river, like from Manaus down drops an average of one centimeter per mile Oh. <laughs> and a good, a good whitewater section would be maybe 180 feet per mile. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it was really flat and so, it was pretty sea boring. Sea kayak
2: is for real. I mean, you might as well have been paddling through a lake.
0: Yes, exactly. Mm.
2: That's crazy. That's crazy.
0: It did get really boring, but at least one interesting thing happened to us every day. And we saw pink river dolphins quite frequently that would swim around us while we were kayaking. And and that was really cool. And then we'd have great interactions with people. And I started playing volleyball with these Peruvian women in <laughs> tiny villages that were incredible volleyball players. And so every day, even though the monotony got to us and we missed the white water kind of at your lowest point every day, you know, a dolphin would jump up next to you and you'd be like, oh, this is really cool. I'm glad I'm here.
2: What about crocodiles or piranha or there's a lot of nasty stuff in that Amazon basin?
0: There is. And so all the locals would make fun of us because every night at camp, we'd want to take a bath, swim in the river. And we'd always ask the locals, is it safe to swim here? Are the piranhas going to eat us? And they would always laugh at us and say, no, the piranhas aren't going to get you, but watch out for stingrays or watch out for this. And we never actually saw a piranha, but we did see some gigantic stingrays. We did see caiman at night when we show- we would shine our flashlights on the banks and you could see their eyes. But uh, the nastiest thing that we encountered were the bugs, mm. the mosquitoes, the little sand flies, stuff like that.
2: Yeah. You know, I said crocodiles because I was afraid to to let anyone know how ignorant I really was, but it's the Cayman <laughs> that are there. Are there any crocodiles yes. when you get to the the saltier part of it, or is that all just Cayman?
0: Um, all caiman throughout the entire Amazon. There's no crocodiles in in on the Amazon <laughs> <Okay>. whatsoever. So
2: <laughs> Thanks for correcting me came, on that
0: one. Cayman all the way. But they you know, we didn't see any really big ones, but they do apparently get quite big and the locals there do worry about them if they're you know, out swimming or canoeing alone and close to dark, they are pretty worried about the caiman.
2: Yikes. So, you had a lot of challenges. You had uh, killer water. You had killer boredom. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> you had a feat of strength. You know, it, it could be killer. You easily could injure out on a, on an event like this, yeah. you had killer animals, you had killer people, you know, which yes. is crazy to think that we'd have to say that, but you really did have to go through some areas that at the time were pretty dicey. Yeah. And uh, did you ever think about this from the get-go at the beginning? Was it like, I wonder what the odds are of actually getting through all that?
0: Yeah, so right now the the introduction to my book is a letter that I wrote to my parents in Lima the night before we started driving to the source of the river. And I, I wrote them this horrible letter saying, you know, if you get this it's because something went wrong and I'm not coming back from the Amazon. And then I went on to explain how I've had a great life and thanks for their support all along. And then I emailed it to my friend, Larry. And I said, you know, we're going to do our best to survive, but if something happens, just send this to my parents. And, um, the reason that I did that we had spent a few days in Lima doing some last minute preparations. And during those days, I really came to believe that this was a much more dangerous undertaking than I had originally thought it was. And, and honestly, mainly because of the human factor, you know, that red zone just came to me to seem so volatile and so scary. And when we set off on the whitewater, I said to myself like, well, you don't have to do the red zone and maybe you should just do the white water and go home. And I really debated this back and forth, you know, like, oh yeah, it'd be pretty neat to become the first woman to kayak the Amazon, but it would be really not cool to get killed while doing it. So, you know, I'm thinking about all these things and I still hadn't decided, but we were getting close to the red zone and I went to a hair cutting place and told the woman in there to cut off all my hair and She was arguing with me. She's like, you have such beautiful hair. Why do you want to cut it all off? And I'm trying to explain to her in Spanish, like, we're going to the red zone. Lots of people might murder us. If they don't murder us, I'm worried about being a woman because they might do other things to me. And I don't know how to say rape in Spanish. And she just looks at me and she's like, why are you going? And I'm like, I don't know, lady. I really don't know. But anyway, I did have her cut off all my hair. And I just kept on saying, like, well, you don't have to go. You don't have to go. You don't have to go. And then I sort of put off the decision so long that we paddled into the red zone. And then I was kind of mad at myself, actually, for doing that, because I really wanted to make what I thought was a rational, good decision and not just plunge into it, which I didn't do. So I was mad at myself. But as soon as we actually got there, we just had enough interactions with people that were so good. Everyone was so friendly to us. And it really didn't seem like this, such a dangerous place as I had built it up to be in my mind. And then, so I'd go on for a day thinking, oh, this is great. People are so nice. And then something would happen. You know, we'd had to go to a military checkpoint and these huge guys with big machine guns would warn us and tell us what we're doing is a stupid idea and why are we going down here? And then I would get scared all over again. But I guess it was just enough of uh, putting the decision off on my part and then, meeting the real people there. And throughout our whole time in the red zone, everyone was really nice to us, including the, the indigenous people that we were supposed to be so afraid of. And we truly had good experiences. And part of that was we got permission letters from all of the groups of indigenous people and followed their protocols that they asked people to do and did everything by their books and that pleased them. And so as soon as we'd show up at a village, like all these villages have armed guards 24 hours a day as a remnant of the Shining Path era. And so the, the guards would be very strict with us. We would show our passports, we'd show our permission letters. And then it was just like, you flipped a switch and they put their gun away. They smiled, they said, come on a tour of our village. And so we just had such a, such good experiences that I, you know, I ended up feeling okay about it at the end, but yeah, I certainly for a long time, for a couple of months, struggled with this idea of like, what are you doing? It is not, kayaking the Amazon is not worth dying for. But then I guess I decided there was a good enough chance I wasn't going to die doing it.
2: Mm. Man, that must have been a, uh, quite the thing to go through. I mean, as you kind of paraphrase it to us, I'm thinking, wow. But then thinking about the reality of it, that's a whole nother level. You know, the emotions involved and the doubts and the questioning and what's going to happen next, day after day. How long were you in the red zone?
0: We were in the red zone almost a month. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, it's an interesting thing. The Peruvian Navy started escorting us our last week in the red zone. And they don't like to go deep into the red zone because they feel their presence will... Upsets whatever tenuous equilibrium exists there right now so kind of as it got less dangerous the the navy started started escorting us but um yeah it was a very interesting experience all my adventuring life to that point the danger has been the rivers or the mountains or the remoteness and those things you know they aren't malicious they just act how they're going to act regardless of your presence or not and when you add people into the mix and especially people who you don't understand their culture their history what they've been through what their fears are it it was um, a very scary experience and just so much unknown and so much out of my control I had never felt quite that way before Mm.
2: Yeah, that would be crazy. Absolutely crazy. So you did have some strange situations, though, where you had to convince people you weren't there for nefarious reasons. Can you tell us a story about one of those?
0: Yeah, so our strangest experience, we had heard going into this region that the people there, the indigenous people there, believe that foreigners kidnap their children and harvest their organs to sell them on the black market. And we didn't really believe them. You know, We thought, oh, this is just something people make up to make these people sound scary and mean. We had to stop at pre-designated checkpoints to show our letters and to check in. And we weren't at one of these checkpoints. So there was a group of Ashaninka indigenous people and they were standing on the shoreline waving us over and it was Saturday and we had heard rumors that the men, especially drink a lot on Saturdays. So we just kind of started waving back and said, well, you know, this isn't a checkpoint. We don't have to stop. And as we drifted past them, they got pretty angry that we weren't stopping. And um, so we ended up paddling back up to them and With a lot of fear, you know, we had this debate between the three of us, like one of the people who had been shot there recently, Don and Midge and I are debating whether we should stop or not. And we're saying this isn't an official checkpoint. We don't have to stop. But one of the people who had been shot in this region the year before we had been there got shot because he didn't stop when some people were waving him over. So we ended up going back. And as we're paddling up, we're like, oh, man, are we paddling closer so they can shoot us with their shotguns? What do these people want? And there was about 20 people there, half men, half women and children. And, And then the man that identified himself as the chief started lecturing us. And he said, you know, we've called you over here because we need to know who you are. We need to make sure you're not a threat. He says, look at these children. They're so little. People come here and they kill them. They do bad things to them. They steal their organs. And then he thought we didn't understand what he was saying, organs in Spanish. And he's like, they steal their hearts and other important parts. And he said, we need to make sure that you're not here to do this to our children. And uh, the three of us were just sitting there and we're still quite nervous because we don't know what the, the result or what the outcome of this is going to be. But, you know, I'm thinking, holy crap, they really do believe these things that we had heard they believed. And, if you know, if they truly feel that way about outsiders, of course, they're going to be scared of us. But he lectured us for about 15 minutes. And then he said of the local guy who was driving the boat at the time, he said, well, we're not going to do anything to you guys because you didn't know any better. But your guide over there, he should have known to stop here. And so we're going to punish him. And then he Mm. wanted to make sure that Don's GoPro camera was off. And he was like looking at my spot device, asking what that was. And then we started to get really nervous. We're like, what, what does punishment mean to them? Oh crap. And they, you know, he waits for a while. And then at the end he goes, okay, his punishment is going to be 50 push-ups." And I really looked at Don. (laughs) I was like, so planchas in Ecuadorian Spanish means push-ups, but it also means like to iron or to grill. So I was like, Don I was oh like, Don, is he saying push-ups or am I misunderstanding? And we're like whispering back and forth. And then finally the local guy started laughing. And so we're like, okay, he really does mean push-ups. And then they had this big joke. The local guy was like, Well, I was in the Peruvian military, so this is no problem. And the The chief of the indigenous people said, well, the Peruvian military are the biggest wimps, so you're probably not going to be able to do 50 push-ups. And then everyone was laughing and joking. And for me, it was this really surreal experience. We're sitting there, you know, getting lectured about stealing their children's organs. And then our guide is going to get punished because he didn't stop. And then everyone's just laughing and having a good time. It was a very, you know, strange emotional up and down at that point.
2: You know what a crazy story! What a life experience! It it is kind of an extreme example of how different cultural expectations and and uh, mythologies can cause these misunderstandings. Right? You know.
0: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. You know, we ended up all having a great time together, but it was so tense at the beginning, and yeah, nobody knew what the other ones wanted and what was going on, and.
2: What an amazing story! So, how did it feel when you finally hit the uh, the open water? You knew you were done. You've reached the ocean. Then what?
0: Well, uh, yeah, that was interesting. So we weren't we weren't done paddling when we hit the Atlantic because the actual we wanted to go to an imaginary GPS point that was truly out in the ocean, like out between the farthest extending two points of land of the mouth of the Amazon. So we paddled all the way out to the Atlantic. But then the next day, we actually had to paddle back, like 30 kilometers to get back to a place where there was a town. So, and for me, it was this very strange feeling. Cause we, um, all you could see in every direction except the one point of land we landed on was ocean. It was very amazing feeling. Like, we actually made it to this gigantic ocean. And we paddled into mm, shore... Wow. And um, Midge almost immediately sat down. It was an amazing sunset. We were on a white beach all to ourselves. And he sat down and sort of quietly started crying. And I just looked at him and I was like, this man has just accomplished the most amazing thing in his life. And he trained for 10 years, for an entire decade, to be able to do this and put everything into it. And he just felt, you know, so overwhelmed and so happy. And then I sat down And really my, my biggest thought was like, okay, what am I going to do tomorrow? And there wasn't this feeling of elation or accomplishment. It was just sort of like, I feel kind of lost. And I don't know if we have time to go into it too much, but before we started recording, I had told you that this journey had come to, I had come to see this expedition down the Amazon as like a a turning point in my life. After I agreed to go with Midge, Don and I sold our business and I got us fired from the new owner. So, and what the, that business meant to us, it was like the only home we had which was in Ecuador, it was our career, it was kind of our identity. And that was all gone. And then we're going to do this really big expedition and and I'm thinking, okay, well this could finally be the thing that that sets me free to kind of be a bit more normal now to settle down, to do things that normal 35-year-old women are supposed to be doing at this stage in their lives. And this will just be the perfect transition point. And this adventure will be so big that all of my adventuresome dry, uh, desires will be satisfied by this. And when I was sitting on that beach, none of that was true. All I felt was, what is the next cool thing I can do? Because I love living my life this way. And it was you know, both disappointing because I didn't feel like Midge fell and I didn't accomplish my goal of being set free to be normal, but it was also a kind of a nice moment of clarity. Like, okay, I just need to find a way to be comfortable living my life this way because this is what I like doing.
2: Mm, that is so nice of you. I'm going to say it that way. So good of you to, to be that candid with us. I think that does happen. And it's important, I think, that when we set out on a, on a big life goal or a big venture of some sort, that we have another one farther down the road. So when we finish, we can go, okay, there is something else. Out yeah, there.
0: exactly.
2: You know? And I'm sure that you very quickly came up with that next big something, right? Because you find you have to.
0: Yeah, I came up with a pretty long list, actually.
2: <laughs> and so where are you now? That was uh, five years ago.
0: That was five years ago.
2: How did it turn out? What's going on these days? Dogs make the best partners for outdoor adventures. Good food keeps your dog happy and healthy for those big days. So feed your pets Kennedy. Kennedy is an independent and family-owned pet food company who uses the same care and the same quality ingredients they want for their own pets when making their pet foods. In keeping with their commitment to pets and their people, Kennedy has taken the first steps at Kennedy Farms to getting involved in growing the ingredients that they use. Go to Canadae.com slash podcast to try Canadae for free by requesting a free sample and you'll get other special offers too. That's C-A-N-I-D-A-E dot com slash podcast. Again, that's com slash podcast. Check out bikeparts.com for all your cycling gear. They have a wide selection of over 60,000 bike parts and accessories, You can find everything you need, including tires, chains, tools, frame bags, cycling apparel, and even complete bicycles. They've got established brands like Shimano, SRAM, and Campagnolo, as well as the latest and greatest products from brands like Wolf Tooth, Physic, Zip, and Race Face. Need suggestions or have a question about what fits your bike? Their knowledgeable staff will answer any questions and get you rolling as quickly as possible. If you're in the great state of Colorado, stop by their full-service bike shop, Peak Cycles, in Downtown Golden. Check out bikeparts.com.
0: You know, I, I feel like now I'm, I'm even closer to my midlife crisis, and I'm still uh, being a kayak bum and not doing anything very normally, so I'm not sure where I'm at. But, um, well, the, Don and I bought our business back in Ecuador, so we're back doing that. We've had a few pretty great river adventures in russia and in british columbia since then and i did uh like you said i came up with more things i really wanted to do sort of life goals that i wanted to accomplish and we've accomplished a few of those and uh now we're just happily living our weird adventuresome Mm. life
2: (laughs) i love it though because some people have the life goal of living a weird adventuresome life and they don't know how to get there any advice for them
0: Um, yeah, it's, I will say it's very challenging. I mean, that's not something that should be overlooked, but you just have to commit. I mean, you just have to quit your job, follow your passion, but be willing to embrace all the discomfort that is going to come with that. And, and there's going to be a lot. I mean, there's no doubt that, you know, having a good steady job and having a house and having all these things is in a way much nicer, but in a way they all, they all tie you down too. So I have all of my belongings in a storage trailer that my parents are kind enough to let me park on their land. And, um, You know, Every year when I come home from Ecuador, I do go through a really challenging period of like, okay, what am I going to do now? And we don't have any home to come back to. We don't have jobs to come back to. We kind of don't have a purpose. And we sort of have to reinvent our lives for seven months every time we come back to the United States. But that also leaves us open to kind of do whatever we want. And we've just come back from a month of kayaking in California. And, you know, it can be really awesome. You just have to be ready to do a lot of camping, rely on your friends a lot to sleep on their couches and do laundry at their houses and um, embracing the suffering, I guess would be my biggest advice for people that want to do it and embracing the, the unknown of it all. Because it can be quite scary, but it's also immensely rewarding.
2: Mm. And how would, you, uh, how would you rate the lifestyle for yourself? I mean, people always imagine something when they think about this sort of a thing, but how's it worked out for you? Is it the way you want to live?
0: You know, that's, yeah, that's a challenging question and one that I feel like for me every year that I get older, um, I ask myself that again because, and this is sort of stupid, but I do feel a little self-conscious about being a 40-year-old woman who's still doing these things, you know, and a big part of my brain thinks that, oh, this is cool when you're 23 years old to live in your car and travel around kayaking and, do all this stuff. But then a very big part of me is like, it's not really okay for a 40 year old woman to still be doing this. But then when I sit down and think about it and I try to think about what the realities of having what I would call a normal life would mean for me personally. And, and I don't like that. And even down to little details about like, if my parents need my help, I can drop everything and come stay with them for two weeks to help them out. And that wouldn't be possible having like you know a nine to five job where you only get a couple weeks of vacation every year and so what it comes down to for me is this constant struggle between what I enjoy doing and what I feel is socially acceptable and as long as I can keep the scales tipped to focusing on my happiness that I love living how I live when I let the scales mm. tip back a bit to feeling like I'm too old for this stuff. This isn't what I should be doing. Then I get a little uncomfortable with it, but you know, I'm constantly reevaluating and I usually come out thinking I like living this way.
2: You know, Darcy, I I imagine right now there are thousands of people cheering you on going saying, no, no, don't stop. Don't stop. Go, go, go. (laughs) You know, that's what the adventure sports podcast is all about. And uh, I, I applaud you. Well,
0: thank you. You know, I you're living that. what
2: a lot of people would say you're living the dream. And there's another concept that comes up from time to time. And that is that everybody wants to retire someday. Yes. But most people don't get to <clears throat> with their health and their strength and their youth and their vitality to do the things that they really want to do. And so you've managed to build a lifestyle where you are young enough and strong enough and have what it takes to do the things you really want to do and you're living it now, you didn't miss out on that opportunity. Yeah. And you know, that's good.
0: Yeah, that is good. And uh, you know, I think the reality for me will mean that I will never truly retire, but that, you know, that'll be okay. And you're right. I'm doing all these things I want to do now while I'm still physically capable. And that's, I feel good about that.
2: Cool. Well, let's talk a little bit about your book. We're not going to go into detail other than to say that you've written a book about this experience called Amazon Woman. Yes. And you're looking for a publisher at this point.
0: I'm looking for a publisher. And I I have a literary agent. And uh, yeah, we're working on finding a publishing house that thinks the book will be a good fit. But I hope that we'll find one soon and that lots of people will get to read about the adventure and be inspired to set out on their own adventures.
2: Mm. Absolutely. And, you know, listeners out there, I know a lot of you know publishers and publishing houses, and you've heard enough of the story now to know that this is going to be an amazing book. So, I don't know, make a connection. Darcy, is there a way that people can get in touch with you?
0: Yeah, absolutely. You could uh, email me, darcy at com, or I'm also on Facebook under Darcy Gector, but... I'd love to hear any suggestions or connections or ideas that people out there have for me.
2: Smallworldadventures.com is the next thing we need to talk about. This is your Ecuador kayaking business, right? This
0: is, yes. And this is the one we sold right before the Amazon trip, and then we bought it back in 2016.
2: And it is a big part of what makes it possible for you to have this lifestyle, I'm sure.
0: Yeah, it is probably the number one thing that makes it possible, and uh, we... uh, Yeah, we spend about five months every winter down in Ecuador leading whitewater kayaking trips. And then the rest of the time we come back to Colorado usually in the summer and travel and kayak or get seasonal jobs depending on how broke we are and uh, just try to make it work.
2: Nice. Well, do you think that's one of the answers? If people want to have an adventure-focused lifestyle, do they need some sort of a business like your business in Ecuador?
0: Um, you know, that's kind of a tricky question because a lot of Don and I have been guiding kayaking trips for close to 20 years now. And we both really love the guiding aspect of it and showing new people the rivers of Ecuador, you know, helping people push their own limits and accomplish things they might not be able to accomplish without some river guides around. But for a lot of people, mixing the work and the pleasure doesn't always doesn't always work so well because then all of a sudden the thing that you love is your job and you might not love it as much anymore so i think for the right people it's a great idea but it's it's a challenging business for sure you know it's tons of work there's not that many kayakers in the world so we have a pretty small market pool and um you don't really make a lot of money being a kayak guide so you really really have to love it in order to embark on something like this um So I don't think it's a necessary component. I think it is one option. But, you know, we have a lot of friends that do something like one guy comes to Colorado and he's a raft guide all summer and he lives in a tent and saves his money and then he travels all winter long and he's been doing that for a decade. And we've got other friends that are carpenters and they'll work in stints to save up the money they can and then go spend it all traveling. And so there's lots of ways to do it. And the owning your own business, obviously offers a lot of freedom and flexibility work hour wise. But uh, yeah, I guess that would be my only caution is make sure that you won't mind your passion becoming your work.
2: You know, a parallel to that, I recently told one of my kids that uh, college can very easily take the joy out of your passion. Yes. (laughs) And the reason is because you get force fed so much all at once. It's just too much. Yeah. You know, and and it's like, well, the joy comes back later. You just need a break. Yeah, You need to breathe, exactly. recover a little bit, digest, right? And I'm sure you could do the same thing with a business, right?
0: Yes, absolutely.
2: So maybe there's an element of knowing how to pace yourself. I don't know. I'm sure that you've sorted that out. I have no idea what that would be.
0: Oh, I'm, I'm still learning for sure. Every, every year, every week is more learning, but that's what keeps it interesting.
2: Oh yeah, yeah. What I think would be really fun, I'm going to throw it out there for our listeners, I think it would be fun if someone said, I know a publishing house that needs to know that this book is going to have enough sales, and then that they would let everybody know this is the publishing house to contact, and then everybody can contact the publishing house and say, I'm going to buy a copy of that book if you just publish it, and that way we can get this thing out there.
0: That sounds awesome. I love it.
2: But that's a lot of hypothetical stuff. So if you know a publishing house out there that we can target, (laughs) let us know. And so the Amazon Woman book, I think that that's funny. You know what that's so funny is because, to me, you you started the whole conversation by saying that I am diminutive Darcy. Yes. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) And and you're the Amazon Woman.
0: Exactly. It's been a big, long transformation.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure there's a lot of that in the book. Yes. Yes. Well, Darcy, thank you so much for taking the time to share your story with us. I was enthralled. It just sounds so neat, what you're doing currently, what you have done, the journey that you've been on. Uh, Thanks for sharing that little piece of your life with us. It's really encouraging. Yeah,
0: thanks, Kurt, for having me. I really enjoyed talking with you.
2: Oh, you bet. And for all the listeners out there, wow, right? (laughs) Until the next show, figure out what your thing is and get out there. Have some fun.
1: Wow, that was a cool story from Darcy Gector. 4,300 miles and 148 days on the Amazon River. Pretty crazy adventure she had. If you guys happen to know a publisher that we might put in touch with Darcy, please let us know and we'll get that information on to her. I would absolutely love to read that book, and I hope you guys would too. So let's help her. And if you're not a patron of ASP yet, head on over to patreon.com slash adventuresportspodcast. For $5 a month, you get access to our exclusive patron-only episodes, You'll also get a chance to win some of the prizes we're going to be giving away to our patrons. You also have your opportunity to submit questions for future ASP interviews, as well as potentially co-host an episode with Kurt. That about does it. Until then, guys, get out and have some fun.